The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for June 17, 2023. After his arraignment on Tuesday, former President Donald Trump promised that if he is re-elected, he will appoint a special prosecutor to, quote, go after, end quote, President Biden and his family. Trump's message accusing the Justice Department of charging him solely because he is President Biden's political opponent attempts to question the Justice Department's independence from the executive branch. For today's Archive episode... I picked an episode from April 2018, in which Matt Axelrod, Bob Bauer, John Bellinger, Jack Goldsmith, and Don Verrilli sat down to discuss the norms that govern the relationship between the White House and the Justice Department, how the Trump administration broke them, and what can be done to protect them moving forward. is the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, 2018. Earlier this week, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates convened an afternoon of panels at Georgetown Law School on the future of American democracy. One of those conversations featured an ensemble cast of five executive power luminaries, Matt Axelrod, Bob Bauer, John Bellinger, Jack Goldsmith, and Don Verrilli. With a range of pessimism and optimism, they reflected on the norms that govern contact between the White House and the Justice Department, how the Trump administration has broken those norms, and what can be done to protect them in this administration and in the next. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 305, Preserving Justice Department Independence. Uh, thanks, Sally, um, and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us on uh, this day to talk about a really important subject, which is the rule of law, and we have a great panel to do that with. The rule of law is a broad topic. It means different things to different people. We're going to focus on a specific and perhaps targeted piece of the rule of law, a critical aspect of it, which is the principle that the law enforcement power of the state not be used for partisan political ends. You know, relatedly, the principle that the White House needs to maintain a strict wall of separation between it and the Department of Justice when it comes to individual criminal cases. And we're blessed today to have a 
great panel of people who have served in the roles and seen this from the inside because we have people from both the Bush White House and the Justice Department in the Bush years and the Obama White House and the Justice Department in the Obama years. So let me introduce everyone briefly and then we'll get right to it. We have John Bellinger who served in the Department of Justice when Bush was president. He was counsel in the criminal division on national security matters and then he also worked at the State Department as a legal advisor but also in the Bush White House as a legal advisor to the National Security Council. Um, next to him we have Don Verrilli who was the Solicitor General of the United States in the Obama administration and also did a time in the Obama White House as Deputy White House Counsel. Don's now at Munger Tolls. I should have mentioned John's now at Arnold and Porter. Turning to this side, we have Bob Bauer, who was White House Counsel for President Obama and is now at NYU Law School. And last but certainly not least, we have Jack Goldsmith, who was the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel at DOJ when President Bush was president uh, and is now at Harvard Law School and the Hoover Institution. So let's get to it and let's start with Don. Why is it so important that law enforcement activities in individual criminal cases be kept free from partisan politics? And relatedly, why is it that there has historically, at least since Watergate, through both Republican and Democratic administrations, been a wall of separation between the White House and the Department of Justice when it comes to individual criminal investigations? Well, thanks, Matt. It's uh, terrific to be here and be a part of this. So I think it's helpful maybe to take a step back and think about this in a little bit broader context. The Department of Justice is, in a key way, a unique cabinet department in the executive branch of the government. On the one hand, it's like every other cabinet department, like HHS or the Department of Energy, in that uh, the department is a part of the executive branch. And if the president has a certain set of policies that the president wants to implement, and they involve legal matters, of course, the Department of Justice is supposed to implement them. And, you know, an obvious example of that, for example, uh, in the Obama administration, there was a, a belief that the criminal enforcement of low-level drug offenses was contributing to over-incarceration, and that as a policy matter, we ought to cut back on that. This administration got a different policy take on that same question, wants more vigorous enforcement. So in that respect, DOJ is like any other cabinet department in that it implements policies of the president. But there's a way in which it's vitally different, and it has been vitally different, and it is at its core related to this question about the enforcement of the law. Because, you know, there's about, what, 120,000 or so employees in the Justice Department. The vast majority of them are devoted to the enforcement of the criminal laws. And the way in which they go about enforcing the criminal laws is a matter of incredible importance to the legitimacy of the government. It is of vital importance that the public has confidence in the way the Department of Justice carries out that responsibility. And there's a reason, you know, there's a very basic reason why. It goes back a lot further than Watergate even. There's a very famous speech that Robert Jackson gave when he was Attorney General in 1940 about the role of the prosecutor. And if you'll just permit me, I'm going to focus on something that every Attorney General and every Deputy Attorney General knows by heart. But I think it helps kind of get to the core of what we're talking about here today. So Jackson says in this speech, the prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. His discretion is tremendous. He can have citizens investigated, and if he's that kind of person, he can have it done to the tune of public statements and veiled or unveiled intimations. 
on and on. So while the prosecutor, at his best, is one of the most beneficent forces in society, when he acts from malice or other base motives, he is one of the worst. And then Jackson goes on to explain what the problem here is, which is that it's critical that a prosecutor have as nearly as possible a detached and impartial view of all groups in his community. And that's because law enforcement is not automatic. It isn't blind. And one of the greatest difficulties of the position of prosecutor is that he must pick his cases. And if a prosecutor is obliged to choose his cases, it follows that he can choose his defendants. And therein is the most dangerous power of the prosecutor, that he will pick people that he thinks he should get rather than, he, than cases that he thinks should be prosecuted. So that's bad enough and, and dangerous enough a power if left unchecked and unconstrained on its own. But what about the situation where the President of the United States and those around him are directing the use of that awesome power for their own ends, directing the use of that power to punish their enemies, and directing that use of power in the other sense to foreclose enforcement against their cronies and their buddies. Now that, of course, was the great lesson of Watergate, that not only was that a theoretical possibility, but a very real one, and that as a result of Watergate, these norms that Matt mentioned grew up around the way in which the Department of Justice was going to execute, exercise that prosecutorial power and the relationship between the White House and partisan political considerations and the exercise of that power and the basic idea behind the relationship, which manifests itself in all kinds of ways that uh, our colleagues up here on the panel can talk about, is that there's supposed to be a very strict wall in place such that those kinds of considerations that can lead so readily to the abuse of that awesome power are prevented, are checked, are foreclosed. So I really think that that, at the core of it, is what this is all about. Thanks, John. And Jack, turning to you, and, and then maybe we can hear from Bob as former White House counsel on, on this as well. You know, the current president, I think in the past, has said that he has the absolute right to do what he wants to do at the Justice Department. And just this morning in a Fox and Friends interview was also, uh, maybe he knew we were doing this panel today, uh, but he also uh, was speaking again about the fact that he hasn't intervened yet in, I think he was speaking about in particular in the, in the Russia probe, but he was talking about the Justice Department, hasn't, hasn't been involved, but that he might be in the future. Um, and I think DOJ alumni of both Democratic and Republican Republican administrations were aghast at, at, at comments like that because it's so contrary to the Department of Justice they experienced and the way things worked with the White House when they were at the department. And I guess I, I would ask you, the president's the head of the executive branch. DOJ is an executive branch agency. And, you know, Don said it's, it's different. It's why is it different? Should it be different? And are the alumni sort of right to react so strongly when they hear things the president say that he has the absolute right to do what he wants to do at the Justice Department? Good question. So first of all, I was going to start with Robert Jackson also. So I'll just, I'll jump ahead to, I'll jump ahead to just after Watergate when there was a serious proposal in Congress to try to make the Attorney General independent of the President. And this seemed like a good idea after Watergate, give him a six-year term, make him only four-cause removal. Seemed like a good idea after Watergate to a lot of people at first because of the way in which the Nixon administration, with the cooperation of its Justice Department, had really abused the enforcement of, of the law, including criminal law, to protect itself. And 
that turned out after deliberation not to be a good idea, and it was actually the leading lights of the liberal establishment who came forth to say that's a bad idea. And the reason that was thought to be a bad idea, first of all, many people thought it was unconstitutional just because the president's core power, the president is vested with, obviously, the executive power. He has a duty to faithfully execute the law. And his core power is to control the enforcement of the law, including criminal prosecution. And there was also a sense, it was thought, in which it would be a bad idea to have an entirely independent entity, but precisely because criminal law enforcement needs accountability, something that Robert Jackson also emphasized in his speech. So there's a sense in which the president really has extraordinary authority. The attorney general has really delegated his authority by statute and custom to enforce the law, and that is how it worked throughout the executive branch. There's a sense, in some sense, in which, and only a thin sense I want to emphasize, in which uh, Trump is right. What was the exact quote? He can do whatever he wants. There's An a, absolute right. Yeah, absolute right. Well, there, there's a sense in which that's true. He has the power to fire subordinate officials. Um, he has really, in theory, legal control to direct prosecutions as a matter of law. He can't, he can try, he can't order the Justice Department to do something unlawful. That would violate uh, his take care obligation. But he really has extraordinary theoretical powers to control prosecutions and the enforcement of the law. However, ever since Watergate is kind of a compromise to, in the face of this attempt to make the Justice Department independent, Ever since Watergate, there are these norms that have developed. They're not required by the law, I don't believe, but there are these very important norms that have developed between the White House and the Justice Department, which you referred to, that basically insist on a pretty sharp separation, not an absolute separation, but a sharp separation with very narrow channels of communication between the White House and the Justice Department with regard to particular enforcement matters. And we had the independent counsel statute grew up, which was designed to allow the president's senior officials to be uh, investigated to find a way to uh, allow the, the, the problem that senior officials and cronies, as Don said, can avoid uh, criminal prosecution. Those norms are not required by law. They're basically executive memoranda. But they have really, I think, in the last 50 years, 40 years since Watergate, they have really taken on an extraordinary power President Trump is utterly indifferent to those norms. But the important thing, I think this is really important to understand, he is indifferent to those norms, but his political appointees in the Justice Department have not been indifferent to those norms. And one of the extraordinary things about how the rule of law has worked, in my opinion, uh, in the last year and a half, and it's really a remarkable testament that I think we don't appreciate enough, and I know Bob disagrees with me about this, so he can have the next word, is the extent to which... You know, really, the investigation of the president has gone forward despite firing the FBI director. It's got worse for him after that, despite the fact that he put in place the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, the FBI director to succeed Comey. The investigation has gone forward. The president has complained about it, bullied, violated every norm that's possible. And yet there are these norms instilled within the Department of Justice and, in the, and the FBI. The president is attacking them, but they've held so far and they've really result in this remarkable uh, independence, practical independence of the Justice Department. Thanks, Jack. So, uh, Bob, A, you get rebuttal, but B, you were the White House counsel. You, I believe, authored one of those executive memoranda that Jack is referring to. Can, can you give us your perspective on why you thought it was important when you were White House counsel that there be a separation between the White House and the Justice Department when it came to individual criminal cases? Certainly, uh, and, and thank you again for having me. 
Let me say one thing before we even get to the Department of Justice, because it also affected, I think, my view as White House counsel about the rest of the administration and the exercise of executive power in that presidency. And that is, we know, and Don referred to other executive branch agencies, that the government exercises awesome power. Some of the agencies, other than the Department of Justice, make decisions that affect people's lives in extraordinary ways. And some of them also have adjudicatory authority at the administrative level. And even in those cases, I think it is fair to say, and I think we were mindful of this in our administration, and I believe White House counsel and other administrations have been mindful of this as well, that the public expects the government to operate on the merits free of the influence of partisan politics at virtually any level. So even before you come to the Department of Justice, you want to expunge in the interest of public administration and public confidence any suspicion that decisions about public resources, decisions about the allocation of powers that rest with these executive branch agencies can be influenced by partisan political considerations, whether they are to feather politically the administration's own nest or to foul the nest of your opponents. So when you get to the Department of Justice, as Don and Jack have both said very powerfully, and especially as the norm has gained force since Watergate, there is particular concern about the use of the criminal laws, which are obviously able to bring people completely to ruin. There are many of them. Many of them have very elastic application. The government has enormous powers in the standoff with citizens in a confrontation over the application of the criminal laws. There especially, that concern with government on the merits, free of political influence, I think asserts itself with powerful force. And so we were mindful of that across the board, I think, in the Obama administration. And I want to say, without uh, any slapping of my own back here, I suspect that's been true of of White House counsel and administrations uh, before us, and hopefully will be true of administrations that come after. Let me say something very briefly about Jack refers to our, 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 our difference of opinion. I was very quickly thinking about where those differences reside. It's probably a question of optimism versus pessimism about the situation in which we're currently in. Imagine a president who comes to office with Donald Trump's indifference to norms, who has more government experience, more government relationships, who quite frankly just is better prepared for the job. That person will appoint different people to run the Department of Justice, people who may share the same indifference to norms. There's a view, as you know, in some parts of our political process, among some political factions, that the norms that we're talking about today have been, if you will, engineered by people to serve certain establishment goals at the expense of large segments of the American public. So they not only have contempt for norms in the sense that norms get in their way, they built a political case against those norms for being inherently discreditable. So I am worry about the possibility that in the future, a president more deft, if you will, coming into office and thinking through a program of appointments, a more, if you will, shrewd mechanism for norm busting, will in fact do better than Donald Trump has done up to this point. And of course, some of the concern with the firings that he has been threatening from time to time, especially of the deputy attorney general, suggests that he's had some buyer's remorse. And he might think of replacing some of the people currently in place with others who share his view um, and may more effectively root out the resistance that we see, the, the professionalism that we've, we've been honored to observe among many department employees. Thanks, Bob. I want to take some time to talk about 
how things mechanically have worked in the past, and then we can talk about how they're working now, and then I think we should explore why the difference is important. So let's, let's go to you, John, get you in on the action, especially since you worked both at the White House and at the Department of Justice. How, how has this relationship worked in the past? How did it work in the Bush administration? So what's interesting is a number of us, including Sally and Larry Thompson, have been on a number of sides of this equation between the Department of Justice and the, uh, uh, the White House. Then I moved on to the State Department, so I've been on all three sides. I was actually served in the criminal division of the Justice Department during the Clinton administration, I was a, a, a career official, then I moved to the White House, then I moved to the State Department. So let me talk about the mechanics of how we ensure this uh, independence and separation between the White House and the Justice Department. When I was a justice, of course, I was trying to keep the White House away from us, and when I was at the White House, I was trying to at least have some communication. So what we have are some rules of the road. We have a very clearly written contacts policy that goes back 40 years through successive administrations that's issued both at the Justice Department and at the White House. I think at Justice it's issued by the Deputy Attorney General. At the White House it's issued by the Council of the President. And it's very clear that says that any contacts on investigative matters or particular cases can only go through a very small number of people, like about four. You know, the, the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, the Council of the President, or the Deputy Council of the President, with certain exceptions in national security matters. And the Justice Department issues that to all of its employees to make sure that if the Justice Department employees get inquiries from the White House, they're just not supposed to answer them. Similarly, at the White House, the Council of the President, and the, remember we have a turnover every four or eight years, all our new members of the White House staff, uh, the, one of the key jobs of the Council of the President is to educate all the White House staff to say, just don't do it. Don't talk to people at the Justice Department if you're curious, and the same with other investigative agencies. Now, interestingly, the Trump administration did issue, Don McGahn issued one of these standard memos, the contacts policy from the White House, and I'll actually read to you, it's a couple of pages long on who can contact whom, but uh, the key philosophical sentence is the following one. In order to ensure that DOJ exercises its investigatory and prosecutorial functions free from the fact or appearance of improper political influence, these rules must be strictly followed. Now, I, there's at least one person in the White House who may not have gotten the memo. You know, one problem is, is that there just does not seem to have been a lot of education inside this White House on the importance of this wall of independence. But there are supposed to be these strict rules. There are certain exceptions. You know, most of you know my particular area was national security, and we actually had certain exceptions because uh, when it does come to investigations for a national security purpose or an international purpose, uh, it is important, in fact, for the national security advisor to be aware of what's going on so that it can be balanced with foreign policy or our intelligence equities or even for the Defense Department. But even there, very strict rules. The National Security Advisor would be one of the few people who could talk to the Attorney General. Larry Thompson and Gandhi Rice and I would sit down and occasionally, you know, talk about whether there was a sensitive investigation uh, that we needed to know about. But it was really more a matter of knowledge so that 
policy could be developed, not so that the White House could then say, well, stop that investigation, or we want that country to be investigated. It was really more a matter of bringing policy together. So that's the way it's supposed to work in normal times. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then 
weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right, thanks, John. And we'll, we'll get to how it's working now in a second. But first, I wanted to check in with Jack. What, what's the basis for these past practices? So they're certainly strongly held norms. You talked about this a little earlier. I think some academics believe that there's also a, a legal basis, a constitutional basis in the Take Care Clause. You, I believe, disagree. But can you talk about that briefly? Sure. So the Take Care Clause is a duty that Article 2 imposes on the president to take care, to faithfully execute the law. And the take care clause gives rise to three different presidential powers. It's the at least one part of the Constitution that gives him a duty to follow the law. 
part of the Constitution that gives him the duty to enforce the law, but it's also been seen as the part of the Constitution that gives the president the supreme authority in the executive branch to interpret the law. On the theory, and this goes back to the 1790s, on the theory that the president can't enforce the law and can't comply with the law until he knows what the law requires, and the vast majority of law that presidents bump up against every day, or at least a lot of it, has not been interpreted by courts. So the executive branch has to interpret the law for itself before it acts. And while I said earlier that the president, consistent with his constitutional duty, can't order a Justice Department official to violate the law, the president does have, and it's accepted that he has, extraordinary authority to interpret the law within the executive branch. I've lost track of the question a little bit, but that's why I think the idea that these these norms between the departments have a constitutional basis is hard to maintain because the president ultimately has the authority to direct prosecutions, I believe. There may be people on the, at least as a constitutional matter, who disagree with me, but there's significant Supreme Court precedent to support that. And the president has extraordinary authority to interpret the law. So really, all of these these forms of independence that we're talking about, acknowledging that the president can't violate the law, but insisting that he gets an interpretive say about what how to interpret the law. Ultimately, I think that these norms of independence are just that, norms. I don't think that means they're nothing. I think they're hugely consequential. I think, we, as to repeat, that we've seen them really having bite. Thanks, Jack. And John, let's, let's turn to you. John laid out how things have worked in the past. Let's get your perspective on how things are working now. Ha. Okay. You know, the, the norms that John described and these contacts policies, if you think about it for a second, you realize they're basically designed as constraints on preventions of the effort uh, to meddle, to use this awesome prosecutorial power for partisan political ends in secret or behind the scenes through the communications within the government with the public having no knowledge that it was going on. And, of course, that was the problem in the Nixon administration that gave real impetus to the acknowledgement of the importance of these norms. But, you know, it's so freaking weird. <laughs> it's all happening out in the open right now. And, and I think that's what's such a great threat to the, to the norms that we've all been talking about and their uh, importance and the integrity of the Department of Justice as an institution. That, you know, A, given that all of this stuff is happening brazenly out in the public right now, you're left to wonder looking at it from the outside, how much more is going on that we can't see. And so there's that real risk to the public's faith, public's confidence in the fair and impartial administration of justice. But that beyond that, just the public statements themselves have a deeply corrosive effect. I mean, I just, just to take one example, and it's about Andrew McCabe, who's now been referred for a potential prosecution. Now, I'm not saying anything about the merits of that question one way or another, you know, but think about it. The President of the United States has already repeatedly called for this guy to be prosecuted before this process has uh, even been undertaken. And so how much confidence is the public going to have at the end of that process, even if it is in fact carried out with the utmost integrity? And so that's why, while there's a lot to be said, I think, for the point Jack made about the, uh, the integrity of the actual operation and, and actual carrying out of the duties of the senior officials in the Justice Department so far, 
you know, how much confidence is the public really going to have when these very basic institutional concepts are under daily assault by the President of the United States? I just think that's a very, very grave problem. Can I just say one contrarian response to that, if I could? May I? Of course. Um, obviously, I agree that the President's brazenly and openly violating these norms. And in some sense, it's obviously true that – I think this is the aim of the President. He's trying to undermine the legitimacy of the Justice Department, of the Mueller investigation, of the FBI. I think that's what all this is about. But the brazen openness makes it less effective. I mean, you're right that if, if McCabe is prosecuted, it's going to seem political no matter what the – what the evidence is against him. On the other hand, it's going to be much, much harder, I think, for the Justice Department to bring a prosecution, I, I suspect, precisely because the president has prejudged the case and the Justice Department, the norms of the department, they don't like to look political or act political. I think that the – so while I actually agree with everything you said, but there's a self-defeating element to the president's open, brazen violation of the norms. It would be much more effective to communicate in secret and, and because, among other things, then there wouldn't be this public check. The other thing about the brazen openness is it's on the front page of the paper every day. Everyone's commenting on it. Everyone can see it. So I think in a way we should be grateful for his brazen openness because I think it makes – as opposed to, to, to violating the norms in secret. So I think the thing about that is what you just said is true until it isn't. And, and that's, that's where that's the problem. Where Bob and I disagree. Right, so. I mean, it's, it's been true so far. We'll see. I, you know, it may be, Jack, it may be self-defeating for the president's narrow purposes, but it's not self-defeating for the country. I mean, and I know you agree with that. I mean, I the, you know, the concern I'm there is. I'm talking about the narrowness of the McCabe. The concern president. is the damage that's actually done to the Department of Justice. Yeah. And let me, let me follow up with you on that, John, because in addition to the brazen openness, there have been some things that have happened behind closed doors that we only know about because later they ended up in the press. For example, it was reported that the president called and asked the attorney general to, to drop a pending prosecution of Sheriff Arpaio. He, was, he later pardoned him, but while the case was going on, um, asked uh, in a specific criminal case for the attorney general to take action. Um, we know from uh, last week's uh, book tour and well beyond that that uh, the president, at least according to Jim Comey, asked Jim Comey to take specific action in the in the matter with 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 Mike Flynn, and I think that's Don's point, which is that if all this is happening out in the open, and we can debate what the effectiveness of that is, what's happening behind closed doors that we're not even seeing? And I guess I would ask you, how different is are these examples from uh, that we're seeing now or reading about in the paper now from how things operated when you were in the Justice Department, when you were in the White House? I mean, I guess I can say I was not in you know, every meeting between the president and the attorney general, the deputy attorney general. So, you know, very few of us will know what really goes on behind closed doors. But, you know, I think uh, every counsel to the president that I know of, Bob can speak for himself, but certainly those who I've, I've worked for, and national security advisors, to the extent that they are talking to the president about national security matters, tell the president, stay out of it. Do not talk about specific criminal matters. And again, maybe, you know, Don McGahn has as well. I mean, you know, Jack, you've written a good deal about Don McGahn. None of us know, you know, what he's actually advising the president. What we do know is that the president has gone forward anyway. And I, I just actually have to make an aside as well. 
you know, we're talking about the Justice Department, but the president has done this with respect to the military justice system. You know, the, you know he has made statements about Bo Bergdahl, the man who had walked off in Afghanistan and then has been subject to a court-martial saying that he ought to be tried for treason to the point, this was little remarked on at the time, that the White House had to issue a statement saying that the military prosecutors needed to exercise their own independent judgment and that there was no intent of the President of the United States to interfere, when there obviously was intent by the President to interfere, and the White House had to actually issue a statement that the, uh, there was not an effort to exercise unlawful command influence. So, you know, I think what we see here is, you know, Jack, this goes back to your point, is we do have people in the White House at the lower levels and at the Justice Department who are trying hard to continue these norms, but it's very difficult when the President of the United States continues to break them. Yeah. Bob, turning to you and you know, listening to the panelists speak, it sounds like um, things are operating pretty differently now in profound ways than they, than they did in the past. What, what's the consequence of that? Why, is that? why is that so important that things are different now than they were before? As I mentioned earlier, I, I have a concern, and, and this is this kind of underlies somewhat of my disagreement with Jack about how optimistic we can be about the future, that, and perhaps in the way he's doing it, it has been self-defeating, but nonetheless, uh, Mr. Trump and, and those who sort of share his view about the deep state are putting all of these norms in play. And we've talked about the post-Watergate period. Their vitality is really a, represents a relatively small share of American history, if you will, the strength of these norms accelerated considerably, intensified considerably after Watergate. That was in 1976. And so uh, it seems to me that there ought to be a concern that there's even a debate in some sense about whether these norms serve the important purposes that they do. I also want to flag, because I think it's going to wind up and it's clearly in the conversation of the administration, is we, this administration may push the question of the president's constitutional authority not merely to interpret the law or to direct enforcement, but to do so to protect himself and to protect his political aides. And we've talked about attacks on others, but there's also the question of the use of the law for self-protection, whether the president, for example, could ever be prosecuted for obstruction of justice, whether the president could ever issue pardons to effectively scuttle an investigation or to excuse himself. And there are some fine constitutional scholars and certainly more prominent and better ones than I who argue that, in fact, a president can't, except in very limited instances, we don't need to go into that here, can't commit obstruction of justice. I think that's very dangerous. I don't think as White House counsel, and I was discussing with this another prior White House counsel recently, I can't imagine a White House counsel, maybe it's a prudential matter, but also I think as a fundamental constitutional judgment, advising a president that it was fine for him to issue an order to the department for the express and fundamentally exclusive purpose of protecting himself or a close political association from political liability irrespective of the merits. Now, it may be that that survives a constitutional uh, sort of challenge, if you will. I can't imagine a White House counsel ever telling a president that a, it's the right thing for the president to do, certainly, but B, that the president could count on the courts being sympathetic to the president when that is teed up for review. I take some comfort from the history of presidents making those sorts of self-protective claims in the past and finding the courts fundamentally very unsympathetic to them. Now, the courts have not tended to treat presidents very well on these issues, and I suspect that's what the courts will, uh, President Trump would face uh, if 
in the circumstances I describe, he makes those claims with respect to obstruction or with respect to the use of the pardon for these improper self-protective purposes. Well, it's a short answer, and I, I gave you a kind of a roundabout response. Let me just sum up and say, I think things are significantly different. I think there are some issues that have been put into play. I think the norms have been put out to bid to some extent. And I think that there are some significant constitutional issues which at a time of a powerful presidency and a polarized politics in particular could set for several generations to come, you know, some expectations and a way of the, the government will do business. And so I think this is a pivotal moment uh, for these issues to be taken on head on and resolved. Thanks for that, Bob. You know, it's interesting. I, I was reminded by the what was expressed on the, the first panel about the free press, about, you know, the relentless attacks on uh, the press, um, sort of parallels some of the attacks that have been launched on DOJ and the integrity of DOJ and the FBI. And I think the panel before had this, you know, talked about this um, sort of dichotomous view where despite all these uh, attacks on their integrity, the press has sort of never been more vibrant. And I think, you know, we've sort of hit on that a little bit here too. Despite the, the attacks on the integrity of DOJ and FBI, the men and women of DOJ and the FBI have their heads down and are doing their jobs and are proceeding with their investigations, including an investigation of people very close to the president, if not the president himself. So, But I wanted to pick up on one thing you just said, Bob and Jack, ask, ask you, and I know you've written some on this, which is when eventually there's a new administration, sort of what are we left with? The norms that have existed since Watergate are now being violated. Do they snap back into place after this president's administration is over, or, or are they damaged for good? In particular, I'm talking, I know you've written a lot about different norms, in particular talking about the norm of, you know, a separation between the White House and DOJ on, on specific criminal investigations. So let me just say something to Bob, and then I'll answer that. So sure. I'm definitely – I just want to be – I want to be very clear. I am not optimistic, okay? Okay. I'm, I'm less pessimistic than you are, I think is the right, right way to describe it. And, I, and I'm simply noting how remarkably well the institutions have held up uh, thus far. But you raised the question about the future. So there's no way to know, obviously. It depends on who the next administration is, and it depends on what the country is like, and it depends upon the outcome of the next two and a half years – so there's no way to know for sure. If Watergate is a guide, we can expect that on a variety of fronts, we can expect that there will be legislation, not unlike the legislation that is proceeding right now in the Republican Congress to try to protect Mueller, which is kind of remarkable. We can expect legislation. To, we're going to go through all of the post-Watergate questions about how can we make the Justice Department more independent? How can we help buck up these norms? I suspect, and maybe this is more hope than suspect, I suspect that we're going to see a renewed appreciation of those norms. The reason is, that this is an important thing we haven't discussed, this, these contact policies, these, these norms of independence, they serve the presidency. They are in the president's interest. To have, this is why every president, every president since Dixon, surely has views about the, the arc in particular prosecutions. Every single president since Nixon and embedded in these policies has understood, and every White House and Justice Department has understood, that these policies serve the executive branch. They keep it out of trouble, and they serve its interests. And I think that that fundamental – and you know, there's a passage in Comey's book where he first met the president, and they had this nice talk, and he – they were, you know, being chums and all, and he basically said, you know, I'm not going to be able to – we're not going to be able to have these meetings anymore like this once you become the FBI director. And he didn't need to say any more. Comey understood because everyone understood what the norms were about separation between law enforcement and the White House. 
and everyone understood that it's in the president's interest and in the White House's interest. So I'm hopeful that the reasons why those norms have persisted for 40 years will lead them to snap back for those reasons. I don't know. I mean, it really we just don't know what's going to come next. So can I can I follow up on that? Absolutely. So I, I want to make a point. I think following up on Jack, um, and it's about character because I think that's something that really is going to play a critical role in the future. And I'm going to draw my favorite author, Dante. So, you know, Dante's Inferno, and Dante the Pilgrim passes through the gates of hell, Ben and Hope, all ye who enter here. And the first group that Dante runs into are the group of sinners who refuse to take a stand in life. Uh, they were neither for nor against. And they were, you know, as Dante describes them, as wretched souls that have been forever barred from heaven, but who Satan also refuses to admit to hell because it would give the real sinners something to brag about that at least they stood for something. <laughs> and so, so one thing I want to say is, you know, people like Jack and like John, you're not going to find in that group because they did something very courageous, uh, which is they decided to stand for something right now at a cost to them because where they are is not where their party is. And they were willing to bear that cost. And I think that attribute of character is going to be really important for the people who serve in the next administration if we're going to have any hope of restoring these norms because there is going to be enormous pressure for payback. There's going to be enormous pressure to get even. There's going to be enormous pressure to say, well, they did that. We have to do this to right the scales. And so the real risk, I think, you know, beyond thinking about what kinds of legislative reforms there might be, it's going to be about how the people who next occupy these important positions approach the job. Do they approach it with the kind of attitude that you have, or do they approach it with that other attitude? And the pressure to approach it with the other attitude is going to be enormous. So I think that's going to be a huge, huge challenge. Thanks for that, Don, and um, far be it for me to try to follow up on Dante. But I do want to ask everyone, just because we're just about out of time, following up on your point, which is, it's, it's really important to talk about these issues and to have events like this, but I think people are hungry to know, like, what can they do? What can, what can be done? What can people do, either individually, collectively, um, to take a stand so that they don't end up in that, in that, in that, horrible, uh, in that horrible place? So, John, what, what can people do? Uh, so, a couple of things. So there's one advice inside the White House that's maybe not too much we can do about that, but I think, you know, the senior White House officials need to continue to try to enforce these rules, and Jack's point is an excellent one, is, you know, these are not just, no, we're not doing them just because they're old norms. There's a reason for them. It protects the presidency. It protects the president. I gave an in-briefing to every single senior NSC director personally for an hour to explain ethics rules, White House contacts rules, press rules, and I sat down with them as a way for me to get to know my senior directors, but also say, you're in a fishbowl, and if you break these rules, it's not just you, it hurts the presidency. And, you know, I would, obviously, it's, we all know from reading the papers, very difficult for, you know, General Kelly or, or Don McGahn or now John Bolton to manage this president, but they need to do it. You know, John Bolton was the head of the Civil Division, briefly at the Justice Department, and all of them need to explain to the president why we have these rules. So that's inside the White House. More important, what I really see missing, and this is so sad, is that we don't see senior Republican officials, either current 
or past defending the Department of Justice and the FBI. And they don't, you know, anything, any defense is obviously going to be, a, you know, a slight criticism of the president, but they just need to defend the department. Senior Judiciary Committee officials in the Senate and the House and former attorneys general of the United States. These are people who headed the Department of Justice. And so they don't have to mention the president. They just simply seem to say we need to have a Department of Justice and an FBI that are independent and free of political interference. It's a sad thing when we have the president of the United States tweeting and putting the Department of Justice with the words justice in quotations. When that happens, we need to have current and former Republican officials standing up for the department. Bob? Yeah, very quickly, I just have two thoughts. One of them is we talk about norms uh, serving the interests of the presidency. I think that's absolutely true. But if we think about an imperial presidency, norms are an obstacle to the imperial president or a president with imperial ambitions achieving what he or she would like to achieve. And I, I would call for, I would hope that we have uh, some what I call more constitutional humility about the role of the presidency because I think the power of the presidency and the way it has grown has put these norms directly at issue. And the second point I make, I totally agree with John. I think the senior lawyers in this country, but the bar across the country, in the communities and in the states, have to, as not simply lawyers in the swamp, which I regret to say we all are, but I guess Jackson, Boston. So there's a yeah, few. He's in the ivory tower. Yeah, yeah, it's a different swamp. Yes, yeah, so you're very, very also somewhat swampy. But um, that that outside of Washington D.C. and this is one of the concerns I've had about some of the, some of the silence from organized bar circles. There needs to be from the legal profession an articulation at the state and local level of the significance of this. So this is not simply a quarrel within the deep state about deep state between polarized political factions. Jack, you got anything to add? No, I'll just say I agree with the last two comments. Ultimately, it's elections. This is all out in the public. It's all being fleshed out. The press is vibrant. And ultimately, elections and impeachment are the remedies to resolve an assault on the rule of law, and we will see whether that, how that goes. All right. Thank you all. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Special thanks this week to the all-star audio team at Georgetown for providing the recording. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to follow us and share us on Facebook and Twitter and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.